Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the gift of a morning together in worship. Thank you for inviting us, uh, calling us, Lord, to worship you together as a church family. Uh, you often in your word say, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. And so, Lord, we come and we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see uh, truth from your word this morning. Would you bless our time as we study it together? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, hey, welcome, everybody, to FBC. So glad you're here. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and just want to, again, welcome you and invite you to turn in your Bible with me to John chapter 1. Uh, or you can use your device, mobile device, Bible app, however you need to get to John 1. That's where we're going to start this morning, although we're going to be moving around a little bit um, for a few months. So actually dating back to February, I believe, we've been studying the Gospel of John. Little by little, we went uh, through chapter 11, but we paused after that, and we've taken uh, last week and now this week to look back on some things we've already seen, but we want to look a little bit closer at them, and then next week we're starting our Advent series where leading up to Christmas we have a few weeks of a, a special focus there. So uh, this week is our last Sunday in John for at least a little bit. Uh, Pastor Andy Stanley, you might know the name, he's a pastor in Atlanta, has uh, faced significant criticism in recent years for some of his teaching about the Old Testament in, in books and in some of his sermons. He's talked about the Old Testament and argued that the Old Testament is a sort of stumbling block for people coming to faith in Jesus. And in his words, modern people, the modern church needs to uh, unhitch from the Old Testament. It's part of a growing number of voices that would look back to the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, and see them as more harmful than helpful when it comes to following Jesus today. Now, certainly the Old Testament can be challenging to interpret. Shocking even, right? If you've read through it, you know there are some sections that are really difficult to make sense of. I know that's been the case for me. And yet, we have to ask the question, what do we do with that? Does that mean that we, in Stanley's words, unhitch from the Old Testament, move away from it, downplay it, explain it away? I, I appreciate some things that Andy Stanley has taught over the years, but I think here he's in some really dangerous territory. I would argue that we can't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the gospel and the message of Jesus only makes sense in light of the Old Testament. Actually, 75% of your Bible, about 75%, is the Old Testament. And the themes and the truths and the realities about God there uh, set up all that follows in that remaining 25% of the New Testament. And the more we understand then the Old Testament, uh, the deeper our appreciation for Jesus and the gospel will be. If you're not convinced, let me give you an example. John chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. Uh, at the end of the gospel of John, uh, the apostle John writes and tells us, uh, we've talked about this before, um, why he wrote all this, why, why he recorded uh, the events of the life of Jesus. Verse 30 of chapter 20 says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, 
here it is, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So purpose statement for the book, right? He's telling us, hey, here's why I wrote this account of the life of Jesus, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Which, of course, raises the question, what is a Messiah? Or maybe your translation says that Jesus is the Christ. Well, great. What is a Christ? Right? That word comes from the Old Testament. A Messiah only makes sense in light of what the Old Testament scriptures say about an anointed one to come. So if we don't understand what a Messiah is or what the anointed one would be from the Old Testament, then when John tells us, hey, I want you to know that Jesus is the Messiah, then that's not going to mean a lot to us. And so in order to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And so what I want to do this morning is look at a few touch points from the Gospel of John where he shows us how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament how Jesus and the story of the gospel is connected to all these truths from the Old Testament. There are numerous, um, too many to mention this morning, but we're going to look at a few. So John chapter 1 is where we're going to start. We'll read it together here. John 1, 1 through 3. This is how John starts the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So as we look in chapter 1, verse 1 of the gospel, we see how John begins. He doesn't start with uh, adult Jesus walking on the scene performing miracles. He points us back in eternity to the beginning. Verse 1, in the beginning. Which right away, right, if you were with us uh, back in February when we started this series and we're preaching in John 1, we noted that this reminds us of another verse in the Bible. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible, the first page of the Bible, the first sentence of the Bible reads what? In the beginning. So right away, thank you, that was good. Good job, everyone. (laughs) Well done. Right away. Then John is telling us, hey, the story of Jesus, his life, the gospel, is connected with the one true story that God is telling from eternity past. And what happens back in Genesis 1? In the beginning, what did God do? He created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Bible's way of saying everything. He created the heavens, what's up there, the earth, what's down here, everything in between. It all is created by him. And so for the people of God in the Old Testament, this was a really foundational truth. There was one true God, creator of all things. He was the uncreated one. He was in the beginning. He was before all things. He was unchanging. And then we see, now John chapter 1 speaks of the beginning. In the beginning was the word. This is how the Apostle John chooses to speak of the Son of God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then look at verse 3. Through him all things were made. 
Because Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. John 1, in the beginning, and it speaks of creation. All things were created through him, through the Son. Through him all things were made. The pre-existent Christ. The word of God, John 1 says. Active with God the Father in creating all things. The most massive star in the universe and the tiniest molecule and atom of life. And so there are a few implications for this as followers of Jesus. First, it tells us some things about Jesus. He is the uncreated one. He was not a created being. That's important for us to know because there are certain religions or spiritualities today that will say uh, a lot of good things about Jesus, but they'll say he was ultimately a created being uh, in some sense like us. That's what Mormonism will teach. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses will teach, that Jesus was the, the first created being of God, a very important created being, but nonetheless a created being, whereas we believe the Bible teaches that there is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and so the Son of God is not a created being, but has always existed, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So this has implications for what we believe about Jesus. It's very important, the doctrine of the Trinity. This also has implications for how we respond to Jesus. See, in the ancient world there, uh, like today, were debates about our origins. How did we get here? Who's responsible for all of this? What God is the true God? Has the material world always existed? Who made it? Right? One of the core questions that any worldview has to attempt to answer, how did we get here? Where did we come from? Because that question has implications for, for us. If there's one creator God, then we are to worship that God. He's worthy of our devotion. We're not autonomous beings, or it's not just a spiritual free-for-all. Right? There's one God that stands alone above the rest. This pushes back against the autonomy of our day, or our attempts at autonomy and self-direction. I remember back in middle school, a song came out on the radio by John Bon Jovi, called It's My Life. Does anyone remember that song? Yeah? Okay, a couple nods. So picture middle school Matt rocking out to John Bon Jovi on the radio. It was just, if you don't know the song, it's like this rock ballad. It's my life. It's all about how it's about, you know, you make your own decisions. You're going to do things your way. You take control of your life. It's about you. It's my life. Okay, so go listen to it afterwards if you haven't heard it. And so picture again, middle school, you know, stand your ground and do things your way. And I remember middle school Matt, you know, baby Christian Matt, loving that song. I was like, this is my jam. This is a great song. And I was talking with um, a friend of mine from church in our youth group. And I like shared the song with him. I don't remember if it was over the phone and the song came on the radio or if he was there in person. But like those were the days where you, kids, you couldn't just like go to Spotify and listen to any song you wanted. Okay, you had to, you had to wait. You can just go to YouTube and listen to the song. So it came on the radio, and that was a big deal. I was like, Mark, this is, this is a great song. It's my life, Bon Jovi. Isn't this awesome? And he was, bless his heart, he was all thoughtful. And I was like, you know, uh, Matt, as Christians, it, this song isn't 
really true. It's not your life. It's your life belongs to God now. Like you're supposed to be, you're a follower of Jesus. And so it's not just about you and what you want to do. And I was like, well, I'm, I mean, yeah, yeah that, that's what I meant to say. I mean, definitely, you're right. You're totally right. And yeah, there's, I mean, the song's okay, I guess. You know, it's not, you know. Um, middle school is hard, you guys. It was rough. Um, this is the same Mark, by the way, that kind of chastised me for uh, talking about video games during communion. I don't know if you remember that story. So I was just goofy junior high. So junior highers, you guys are doing great. There's hope for you. You're doing, you're way ahead of where I was. And um, but anyways, but Mark, I love you if you're hearing this. He was right. He was, he was right. We love to sing this song about uh, self-direction. It's my life. I'm going to do things my way. It's about me, right? I'm not, I'm not talking literally about the song, but just in general, that's kind of our posture, our approach to life. And yet the gospel tells us something completely different. And the doctrine of creation tells us that we're not self-sufficient. It's not just about us doing things our way, right? If we are created by an eternal creator, then we are called to submit to that creator. Not only do we owe our existence to him, but then he gets to set the terms for how we are called to live. So John, in chapter 1, takes this doctrine of creation, this foundational framework for the people of God, and he connects it to Jesus. All things were created through him. Fast forward with me to chapter 6. We're going to speed forward a little bit and look at another touch point with the Old Testament. Many of us are going to be familiar with the story. Let's read it. I'm going to read it just at length through verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. Sometime after this, it says, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. <coughs> he did the same with the fish. So point number one of the message was we have Jesus, the creator. Point number two we have Jesus, the provider. If you remember back in chapter 6, there's so much going on here. We spent uh, five weeks total, I believe, walking through chapter 6. And on one level, what's going on here is fairly simple, right? Jesus takes a few pieces of bread, a few fish, and, and works a miracle. And shows his power. And provides food for the crowd of 5,000 plus, right? If it's 5,000 men, that means it's uh, much more, including women and children. And so... Uh, in one level, this is quite simple. Look at the power, look at the, the miraculous work of Jesus in this setting. But there's more here. 
right? Because there's, there's layers to what's going on. And we have to look at the context, as we mentioned last time in verse 4. When is this all taking place? It says it's when the Jewish Passover festival was near. It's at the time of Passover. Now, if you're not familiar with Passover, it's this sacred celebration, this sacred festival for the people of God where they would come together and remember the defining moment in their history. It was when they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They remembered the mighty hand of God against Pharaoh. He led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea to freedom. Every year, Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And as a people, they not only would look back at that first defining act of deliverance, but they would look forward to a day when God would deliver them again, that another rescuer like Moses would come and save them from the hand of the Romans and the oppressive forces in their lives of that day. They were looking once again for deliverance. Maybe God was going to send another to come and save them key part of the Passover story, if you remember, he leads them out of Egypt, and then they're in the wilderness for quite some time. And so connected with the Exodus story, the Passover story, is how God, in the wilderness, provided bread for his people. Right? They're in the wilderness a long time, and he fed them miraculously. And here then, in John chapter 6, what do we see Jesus doing? Out in the wilderness, with his people, providing bread, showing this prophet like Moses that the people had been waiting for, he's here. It's him. And we notice that Jesus provides miraculously for the people, and it shows us that God provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. I think again of the story, the resources are embarrassingly small. A couple pieces of bread, a couple fish for thousands. And it reminds us this is just a paradigm for life, <laughs> for how life so often feels for us. The needs that we look out and see are overwhelming. And we wonder how in the world are the needs going to get met, whether it's the needs in your life, your family, your career, your health. Sometimes things you look out and you're here this morning, and I know some of us are just overwhelmed. Like how in the world are we going to make ends meet? The math doesn't add up. The resources are embarrassingly small. We are limited people. Our own resources are not enough. And this goes against, I know this goes against the modern narrative that we're so used to hearing, right? You have what it takes. Look within yourself. You need more virtue, more strength. Look within. You have what it takes to get through this tough time. But the point of the story, and really the whole point of Scripture, is that we don't have what we need in our own strength to make it through whatever it is that we're facing. The disciples don't in this story. There's no way on their own, apart from Jesus, that the problem is going to get solved. We need help from outside of ourselves. And so, yes, we can affirm the doctrine of the image of God in man, right? Men and women were created in the image of God. God has made us with incredible strength and capacity 
and creativity and responsibility to steward this world in his image. And yet, we are affected by sin, every one of us, and limits, every one of us. And the ultimate answers that we need lie outside of ourselves. And so when we are looking to, again, break destructive habits or patterns of sin in our lives, of lust or greed or gossip, when we're looking to break addictions, when we're looking to uh, become the people God has called us to be, it's not just a matter of trying harder. It's not just a matter of being better. We need help. And Jesus says, don't look within. I want you to look to me as the provider. Our son, Shepherd has his first birthday tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, he's in the back. There he is, little man. Uh, he turns one. Hey, bud. Uh, and, and it's in this, he's just the cutest kid in the world. It's objectively, he's cuter than your kids. I'm sorry, he just is. And um, it's wild in this year we've seen, we've been reminded how incredibly dependent babies are, right? If you've ever been around a baby, they are dependent upon someone else for literally everything, everything. Uh, in the animal kingdom, it's a little different. There are certain animals, you notice like horses and giraffes, within about an hour of being born, they're already walking. Can you imagine that, if that happened with our kids? Like, they're born, and an hour later, they're, like, walking around the hospital room, like, yeah, just getting a snack, Mom. I'm going to go over here. Like, like that. <laughs> like, this is so... No, because babies are so dependent for everything. But I've noticed with Shepard, in the midst of this, he's not, like, constantly on edge or, or freaking out, right? And actually, we will go on vacations or trips or travel or uh, overnight different places and circumstances and surroundings change. And he just kind of goes along with it, right? He, I mean, he kind of has no choice, but he just, he goes along with it. He's like, I guess we're sleeping here tonight. All right, I guess mom and dad are taking me here. Like he, he doesn't have a watch and he's not like keeping track of all the things. He's just like, if I'm with mom and dad, I guess we're going to be all right. Really, if I'm with mom, I'll be all right. He's, <laughs> I'm clearly second place, just so you guys know, in his heart. But um, I think that's noteworthy, right? His security, his sense of being okay is tied to a person. It's not tied to circumstances or surrounding. We could be in a new place doing new things. But if we're there with him, he's like, all right. And the same is true with us in God. Our, our security is tied to a person. His name is Jesus. And so even if circumstances change, surroundings change, our security is not tied to circumstances and surrounding. It's tied to a person. Jesus. And so we can be okay. It's not easy. It's easier said than done. But we can be okay even if circumstances aren't okay because he's with us. The miracle we see in this chapter, again, it's, it's about more than just bread. Right? Later in the chapter, verse 35, Jesus says, what? I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so we see that he uses this miracle to show that what we most deeply need is the bread of life, is, is him. 
He's both the provider and the provision. And so, friends, think about all this taking place at the time of Passover, all these links to the Old Testament, the hopes of the people, a new Moses, a new prophet to come and and deliver them, God to rescue them once again. Jesus is showing us he is that greater Moses. He brings that greater Passover. He is that greater Redeemer. And that's the last point I want to talk with you about this morning, this third Old Testament connection in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the creator Number two, Jesus the provider, and lastly, Jesus the redeemer. Rewind with me to chapter 1, John 1, verse 29, in the words of John the Baptist, says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Early here in, in the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, John the Baptist calls people to look at him. He points to him, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, it makes us wonder, okay, what does he mean by that? The Lamb of God, what, what is that getting at? Let's look back and think back again at the Old Testament and what that would mean for someone with an Old Testament background hearing about the Lamb of God. We can think about the sacrificial system, animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. We can think about Isaiah 53 specifically, a lamb suffering for the sin of the people. We could think about the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, which we just talked about, a lamb putting, being put to death to rescue the people. Right, that first Passover, how were the people protected from that last plague of death? The blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb on their doorposts. So think about the whole Exodus story. There's the blood of a lamb to protect the household from death. Then they're led out across the Red Sea by the power of God to this new life with God. This new identity as the redeemed people of God. Isn't that the same story we tell as Christians? We're rescued from death and judgment by the blood of the lamb. We're led across the Red Sea from death to life. We have this new identity as the redeemed people of God and we'll walk with him forever. Jesus is the redeemer. All these clear Old Testament themes of sacrifice, of substitution, of cleansing from sin applied to Jesus. And so the Gospel of John and the whole New Testament really is is trying to help us see Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the one who came to redeem us from slavery to sin and death and to rescue us from judgment and hell for whoever would believe in him. Again, the word redeem, a redeemer is one who bought something back, purchased something out of slavery, restored something that was broken to usefulness and wholeness. And so it reminds us that Our biggest problem is not out there. Our biggest problem is not uh, a human enemy that is oppressing us. Our biggest problem is in here. Our sin before a holy God. We need someone to forgive us, cleanse us, save us, change us. And Jesus is the one who came to do that. 
right? And so as we think about if we need to be redeemed, we need to be forgiven, we need to be reconciled to God, how is that going to happen? Right? Sometimes we fool ourselves and we think, even if we won't say this out loud, we have this internal assumption that I'm going to get right with God through my behavior. Right? I'm going to f- keep the spiritual rules really well, better than all you guys, and then God's going to be happy with me. We think it's up to us, and so we exhaust ourselves trying to earn the favor of God, trying to pay God back in a way for the bad things we've done, hoping that the good outweighs the bad on the scales of eternity. But the Bible makes very clear over and over again that it's not by works that we are saved. We're saved by grace, through faith, as a gift, because of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So friends, we are saved by turning from sin, repenting, and looking to Jesus, putting our faith in him. Friends, we could keep going. We could talk all morning about how the gospel of John connects to the Old Testament. All these themes, all these passages showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We could talk about his resurrection We could talk about the theme of light versus darkness. We could talk about uh, Jesus as the truth and wisdom of God showing us a better way to live. But we've seen what I would argue are some of the biggest ones. Because if you were to ask an Old Testament um, Jew about their God, tell us about your God. What's he like? What has he done? I think you could make an argument that the three things on their list right at the top would be, well, our God is the creator of all things. Our God is provider, the one who takes care of us. And our God is redeemer. He's the one who's rescued us and called us to walk with him forever. And I think we see these same three themes connected to Jesus. Jesus as creator, Jesus as provider, and Jesus as redeemer. Again, though, not just redeemed from the Romans, or from the Egyptians, or from Pharaoh, but redeemed out of sin and death and hell into eternal life with him forever. And my hope, friends, is that you see in this just great, great freedom in realizing that the Bible ultimately is not about us. Like, we're not the main character in the story. The Bible ultimately is is showing us who Jesus is, showing us who our God is. He's the hero of the story. And when we realize that, we experience great freedom. Then we stop trying to make everything about us. We don't make ourselves the center of the story. This is actually how we're transformed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, we're transformed when we behold the glory of Christ. When we look at Jesus, we see who he is and we see the truth of scripture about our God and we behold, we look. That changes our hearts. That somehow that does something to us within. It reorients our lives in a way that just the law or commands won't. I could sit up here and just tell you, hey, the Bible says do this, don't do this. Hear the good things, hear the bad things, avoid those bad things, do the good things. But that's not going to change your heart. What changes our hearts is seeing Jesus, beholding the gospel, 
Right? John Piper famously put it that no one goes to the Grand Canyon to think about how great they are. <laughs> we go to the Grand Canyon what, to be in the presence of glory, to see something so much bigger and better and more glorious than ourselves that makes us feel small in light of it. It's the same thing with worship. We look to God, we look to his glory, and we see who Jesus is and it changes us. So friends, we have an opportunity to respond now as a church family by taking communion. And so I hope you receive the elements as you came in this morning. They're, again, notoriously difficult to open, so you can start working on that now. But communion is an opportunity for us to remember the work of Christ. Right, if we're talking about Jesus as our Redeemer, well, how did he redeem us? By dying on a cross, by shedding his blood, by having his body broken for us, for our sin, in our place. And so we come in humility to remember Jesus, our Savior. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and then we'll take the elements together. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. You are our redeemer. You, with your blood, purchased us. You brought us out of slavery to sin and death. You saved us from wrath and judgment. You've just lavished your goodness on us and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the gift of life with you that we did not earn or work for or even look for. Lord, you came and sought us. And so, Jesus, we worship you together this morning. Thank you for your broken body and shed blood for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. So this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.